Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. If you miss anything, go over to warroommedia.com. That's exactly where you can find all of the show notes or anything else about the show. Or, if you want, you can support the show by becoming a paid subscriber right there. Okay, our guest today is Thomas J. Baker. He is an international law enforcement consultant. He served as an FBI agent for over 33 years, special agent, I should say. And he has a new book out called The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Thomas Baker. Tom, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, so you have a provocative title, I might say, The Fall of the FBI. How a once great agency became a threat to democracy. Now, that's going all in. Yep. That's what we're seeing today. So, in your opinion, when did this start? Uh, that's something myself and others have been trying to analyze, and I think it goes back to uh, Robert Mueller when he was a director. He first became director, uh, what you may remember historically, he became the director of the FBI just about four or five days before the September 11th attacks. Mm -hmm. Uh, When September 11th happened, the FBI responded and did the thing it does best investigate. Mueller was called to Camp David to meet with President George W. Bush on the Saturday morning after the September 11th attack. He had the FBI's report with him, and in three and a half days, the FBI had identified all 19 hijackers, their associations, their credit cards, their rental cards, everything about them, and their connections back to al-Qaeda. Mueller is expecting a lot of praise for that. It was a remarkable piece of investigation, but instead... uh, in that cabin at Camp David, the president said to him, I don't care about that. I just want you to prevent the next one. Mueller was humiliated by that experience, but he came back and he resolutely set about, he said this, he told us this several times himself, to change the FBI into an intelligence-driven organization. So he was changing the culture, and he used the word culture, from law enforcement to intelligence. And that change, and I can elaborate on this, but that change was the root of the current problems. Okay. So we have one timestamp, which is September 11th, uh, 2001. So let's get the other timestamp in here. When did you join the FBI? Oh, I joined the FBI in 1965. Okay. so I was in the FBI for 33 years. And then in the 20 or so years since my retirement from the FBI, I had a very close association with the FBI. I worked on a number of projects with the FBI Sieges Division in West Virginia, and I continued to participate with the FBI National Academy Program and the National Executive Institute Program, which brought me into regular contact with Mueller and and subsequent directors. Okay. And and so... The first thing I think about when you, when you say this, um, the, the shift um, in the FBI is I think of someone like uh, Jagger Hoover. And I go, okay, well, what was fundamentally different about what he was doing with Martin Luther King Jr., 
um, and people in the 60s uh, as he was recording people? What what would be different about these two eras? Okay, well, in the pre-September 11th era, uh, for all its imperfection, the FBI, although it had responsibility for, for counterintelligence domestically in the United States, it was essentially a law enforcement organization, and it functioned within those parameters, within the parameters of the law. So when you're in law enforcement, everything you do, consciously or unconsciously, you're working forward to the day when you're going to go into court and raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, in an intelligence organization, you don't work within those parameters. You deal in estimates. You deal in best guesses, which are not allowed in the courtroom. And you utilize deceit and deception. And that deceit and deception becomes a daily way of life. So rules are bent in an intelligence organization. They're not as rigid as they are in law enforcement. By turning the FBI away from law enforcement, Mueller created the environment that allowed this loosey-goosey approach that we saw during the Russian collusion investigation. The culture that Mueller created was exacerbated by the poor leadership of Comey in that period. Let's unpack this intelligence, deceit, deception. Um, Because the FBI, I think, historically has, on some level, used... Um, you know, they rent sting operations and stuff like that. So what would, again, just trying to understand the baseline, what would be a, if you're doing a large narcotics bust uh, in the 80s or 90s, you're going to use deceit deception versus the type of deceit deception that you're you're saying happened after 9-11? Yes. Well, the difference is those things were all done in in the parameters in the case of the FBI with an existing federal law. So there there were guidelines created For this, I'll I'll back up a little further. In the FBI, and certainly when I went into new agents training, there was a great emphasis on the Constitution. And most of our classroom time was actually spent on the Constitution. Outside the classroom, it was on technical operational things such as firearms, defensive tactics, and things of that nature. But in teaching us about the Constitution, the agent attorneys who taught us, they've emphasized, of course, the Bill of Rights, and then particularly the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment. And they told us, and a lot of people find it hard to believe, but this is what we were told, that we shouldn't look at the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment as an obstacle to be overcome. We should embrace it. And we were actually given a pocket copy in those days, this this. They stopped this. Uh, Mueller and Comey certainly didn't do it. We were given a pocket copy of the Constitution to keep to keep right with us. And our instructors told us, if you keep that copy of the Constitution in your breast pocket, when you sit down to interview somebody, when you go to somebody's home to execute a search warrant, if you're aware that you're carrying the Constitution with you, you won't go wrong. You won't go off the tracks. I mean, that's how sacred this concept of the Constitution was taken. So when you talk about sting operations, undercover operations, those things were all done within the guidelines of the Constitution and a whole set of rules and regulations, attorney general guidelines were put in place to ensure that. 
Director Webster, Judge William Webster, when he was FBI director, he had a fabulous saying. He said, we have to do the work the American people expect of us, but we have to do it in the way the Constitution demands of us. So with that being said, let's talk about the Mueller moment in 2001. Is this a moment that, in hindsight, you look back and you go, the FBI had been building to something like this and the perfect set of uh, scenarios aligned for the agency to be flipped into more of an intelligence agency? Or was it just Robert Mueller's personality that kind of pushed it forward? Because these are presidential appointments that work for the executive branch. This, I mean, there's a lot of high, being the director of the FBI is a high profile job. It's not, you know, there's, there's some charisma that comes with this. Yes. And Robert Mueller had been prior to being appointed director. He had been a U.S. attorney in both San Francisco and Boston. Uh, he had worked with agents, case agents, uh, but he, he developed a dislike for the Bureau way of doing things. And most specifically, he didn't like the agents in charge, as SACs as we call them. He thought they were dukes. He used that word. When September 11th, you say duke or dupe? Dukes, D-U-K-E, like a little prince, a duke. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. He thought you know they were they were uh, held in too high a regard. So he wanted to manage the September 11th investigation out of headquarters. Now that had never happened. And a number of the people around him in the Bureau at that time tried to tell him headquarters was never meant to be an operational entity. Uh, the, the FBI for 75 years had what they call the Office of Origin system. One office would be the, the Office of Origin and Investigation, which send out leads to other offices to conduct the investigation. Uh, obviously, in September 11th, the logical place would have been New York. Uh, with Ground Zero right there, and they had a lot of experience. They had two international squads working on Al-Qaeda or the Washington Field Office where there was another crime scene at the Pentagon, and they had also had an international squad. But he, he overruled that. He pulled it in. He ran it centralized like an intelligence agency from headquarters. That was the first case run like that. That set a bad precedent because then that was followed by Comey with the Hillary Clinton email investigation and then the Russian collusion investigation were both run out of FBI headquarters. What that did, it did away with layers and layers of review and supervision. Decisions were being made by people in headquarters. They called it a headquarters special. And you've heard these names, Strzok and McCabe. They not only made the decisions in the case, they went out and actually conducted the investigation. Struck one over to England and did one of the first interviews. McCabe called up General Flynn and sent Struck over to interview him. There was nobody reviewing the work. It was bound to go bad. This is a result of Mueller's changes. The other change he made with his dislike for agent executives, he brought in professionals, he called them, to positions that were formerly held by special agents. The, the head of congressional affairs, the head of public affairs, the general counsel. He brought in outsiders for all of those roles, which formerly were held by agents. Now, what you got short term with that, you did get 
somebody with more technical expertise, perhaps, but you lost a sense of the culture, you lost a sense of the institutional knowledge. These were all changes Mueller brought about. Then Comey, with his poor leadership style, exacerbated the situation, and we had the ugliness of the Russian collusion hoax. Okay, one question. Um, you brought up Flynn. Is, am I correct that Flynn, one of the charges, at least against him, was lying to the FBI? But it wasn't that he, I think that even the allegation is that he intentionally lied, is that he unintentionally lied. He was mistaken of a fact. Uh, and that's part of what they got him on. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's another example of, of where the traditional guidelines and, and, the, and that the Bureau had been guided for years went off the track. There is this violation in federal law in Section 1001, and it's called a 1001 violation, where lying to the FBI in a matter of interest to the federal government is, is a crime. This It's seldom prosecuted as such. And what often happened in the past, agents, and I know I did it, when talking to somebody, if they weren't forthcoming, you might pull that out and remind them that lying is, is a violation. You, and use that to encourage getting at the truth. What happened in the Flynn matter, and this is very well documented, they went over there and created a violation by tricking Flynn into not telling the truth. They weren't out to get to the truth. They were out to trap him. And that's pretty well documented now. Yeah, and I would just say, I, I, I'm, because and I brought this up with other guests in the past, I, I think I don't care the error. I think lying to the FBI is a constitutional abomination. I don't know how we can have freedom of speech and, and then say, well, if you lie to the feds, who can lie to you, by the way? Um, politicians can lie to you. We can lie to Congress. People lie. I mean, I, I, I don't know how I'm curious how you feel about this because you said you've used it as a tool. To me, it's one of the most overreaching laws that I'm aware of because we have freedom of speech. And politicians can lie. The president can lie. Congress can lie. Anyone can lie. But if you lie to the feds accidentally, uh, then the feds deem it as a as Ryan, something they can a, a use it as leverage, or B Ryan, they can arrest you. You're prosecute. right about I don't that. Know how, and as I said, it was most often used is, in the past to get at the truth. Uh, it was certainly abused in the General Flynn matter. It was used to create a lie, to create a violation. It, it was outrageous what they did. It really was. In the past, quite often, agents would go in in the course of another investigation, sit in front of the assistant U.S. attorney, and actually, in occasions, ask for that violation to be used. And more often than not, the assistant United States attorney would tell the agent, no, everybody lies, and they wouldn't authorize prosecution on that one point. Yeah, I, I'm just making the point that when we talk about things progressing, it's laws like this that allow things to progress. It shouldn't be a law to lie to the FBI. It should be a crime. That's, I don't know why we think that's a good law. Uh, but a law like that, uh, even if you wanted to argue at one time it was being used for good, which I would not sure I'd go with. But if you did, you are, you're simply opening up the door for it to be misused. And so I, it's how this is the when we have these discussions about these agencies that go off the rails or they go too far, which I'm happy to agree with. It's these foundational things that I look at and go, man. We, there's there's things in the in the in the code that allows Flynn to get trapped. Um, should we be revisiting things that were presumed to be okay 10, 20, 30 years ago? 
uh, and reframing this discussion about what is a proper law, what is a crime. Oh, absolutely, Ryan. And there should be, and Democrats and Republicans should unite on this. There are a lot of reforms that could come out of this, that lessons have been learned. One specifically related to General Flynn, once again, is this concept of unmasking. Uh, Americans who in an, uh, an intelligence over here, okay, a wiretapping, if you will, uh, names of Americans come up who are totally innocent people. The, the, you're only looking for information on the, the foreign actor. Uh, in, in, the, in the law, in the procedures, those Americans, their name is masked. Now, there can be reasons that you need to unmask them uh, for operational reasons, a real need to know who that American is. And I'll give you a specific example. Uh, and this is not a far-fetched example whatsoever. Uh, a Russian uh, commercial attache in Washington, D.C., places a phone call to Colorado and asks about some strategic materials or even asks about the, something as would might seem mundane about the price of wheat or the wheat harvest. That's strategically perhaps important information. Well, the American who received that phone call, of course, is a totally innocent person. But there is a procedural way to unmask that American's name so that an agent can go out and intelligently interview that American about the substance of the phone call. There was no way on earth <clears throat> that anyone could rationally justify the hundreds and hundreds of unmaskings of Flynn and others that were done by high-level members of the Obama administration, including the then Vice President Joe Biden, of innocent Americans. It was an abuse. Now, here's the thing. Like so many things that happened in the Russian collusion hoax, it was not illegal. It was an abuse, but it was not illegal. And one of the reforms that could be made now going forward is for Congress to attach penalties to this promiscuous unmasking of Americans. You mentioned Comey a few times. I want to talk about him because he's an interesting character. Um, Republicans hate him. Democrats hate him. Or they hated him, at least in 2016. They thought he cost Hillary, Hillary, Hillary Clinton the election. Uh, and then, of course, they, they, seem to, they seem to love him again with Trump. What do we make of him? Because it's it's hard to read. I mean. I'm not sure why he came out and said what he said before the election about Hillary and her emails. Um, but it doesn't seem to be he was really a, a pro-Trump guy. And so how, what do you make of that? Well, I'll tell you, we had a, a famous instructor at the FBI Academy for years, and he used to warn us and tell us, uh, be careful of your own virtue. First, you're good. Then you think you're good. And then you're no good. And there's no better example of that than James Comey. When he first came into government, when he was the deputy attorney general, he was thought of being very good and stood up for the right things and stood up for the president to President George W. Bush at one point when he felt and others that Americans' rights were being threatened by certain procedural things with the NSA. When he first became FBI director, initially, he was liked very much by the people at headquarters because he was very humanitarian. He showed a lot of concern for the, for the employees, particularly the low-level employees. And he also had a management style, which turned out to bite us all in the backside, but his management style was very hands-off. 
Uh, he did not press people for details of anything. Uh, one FBI executive uh, motioned to me like this, that Comey just floated above it all, and he didn't get involved in the details of any cases. And he became uh, enamored of himself and then substituted his own judgment. You started to cite, I believe, when he, in effect, declined prosecution of Hillary for the email case, uh, for mm -hmm. the email violations. That was not his role. That was a role for uh, an attorney, uh, a, a federal attorney, either the attorney general herself at the time or the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. But it was not the role of an FBI executive to do that. But he took on that role. And later he substituted his own judgment for many, many, uh, for many things. Uh, his, his briefing of the president-elect, Trump, uh, in December, I believe, uh, he went up to New York and briefed him. And he went in and told him about some of these terrible things that were in the Steele dossier. Uh, and then he, he went down and wrote up the president's reaction. I mean, he was actually trying to uh, incriminate the president of the United States. And then later he leaked these things and he thought it was the right thing to do. He thought he was above the law. So he's somebody, just like our instructor said, he was good, then he thought he was good, and then he was no good. Yeah, I have no real affinity for Comey, whatever side the, the I mean, I, he always seemed like a loser to me. I mean, but even during the even during the Clinton thing, because he was right before the election, you're like, well, what are you what are you doing here? This is you know, couldn't you done it sooner? And then, and of course, the stuff that happened later on, and then he leaks it. And then you're right that as the average non-FBI American, that's the stuff that enrages us. And if you're trying to be fair on the political spectrum of whatever side, um, whatever the issue is, I look at Comey and he's, he's to me, he's, he's just someone who's a hack. He, he kind of, um, you know, feels like he's got it going on. Uh, he's playing, he's playing the game uh, and really to write a book and to go do his speaking tour. And I think he's got some kind of college gig now. And so I, I, did, I never found him, um, overly impressive, but that that's part of the problem, though, right? Is how do we get to a point to where we we have un uh, people who are not impressive in these positions? Well, he he was using uh, he was using the platform of the organization for his own celebrity, and he also imposed his judgment over the guidelines that existed. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a specific thing that he he did. Uh, was it's it's established for thirty years at least in 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 the rules and regulations uh, between the Congress and the and the executive agencies like the FBI when they're about to take undertake a very sensitive or there is a very sensitive ongoing intelligence matter they set up a, a way that Congress could be briefed and that's what they call the colloquially call it the Gang of Eight it's a select committee it includes the leaders of both parties and the mm -hmm. chairman and the minority leader of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. They've all have the highest security clearance. They have a secure place in Capitol Hill where they can be briefed. And yet he undertook, uh, starting in October, uh, he undertook this investigation of a presidential campaign, if not a president-elect, and, and never told them about it. And once when he was before them in March, they asked him about it and asked him why they had never been briefed on it. And he said, well, because it was very sensitive. 
Well, that's the exact reason the, the Gang of Eight was created, to be a, recept, a place where they could be told very sensitive things. So he was always substituting his own judgment for what the existing guidelines were. I want to go back to something you said. Um, you said Comey elected not to press charges or prosecute uh, Hillary Clinton, but it wasn't his his role. It was the prosecutor's role. But so the question then is, is why does the prosecutor not do it? If he, if he has no role in this, why does the prosecutor not take the case forward? Well, the, the, uh, in this case, it probably would have been the attorney general herself. Uh, and, and he, he, he jumped the gun on her. He gave his report live on television to the nation saying that no prosecutor would, with this set of facts would take this case forward. One of the things he hanged, hung his hat on was, and he may have been right, but it wasn't his job to say that. It it was the attorney general's job to say that, and he usurped her role. Okay, so let's focus in on the Trump years. It starts off, as you mentioned, the Steele dossier, uh, the Russian collusion story. Um, what was it like for the average FBI agent during the Trump years? You, uh, your voice got cut off there a little bit, James. Um, I think you're asking me about the out the beginning of the Russian collusion investigation, which the FBI called Crossfire Hurricane. Uh, nope, sorry, lost you there. Um, I'll ask you again. I think that's your question. Yeah. I, I, um, did, did you hear my question? So what was the end of your question there? Yeah, yeah. yeah what was it like for the average FBI agent watching this during the Trump years? Okay, well, here's what it was like, because I've talked to dozens of people about this. The average FBI agent was not involved in this whatsoever. Uh, this thing, as I started to say before, was run as a headquarters special. Uh, at, at one time, one of the individuals involved in this conversation told me this, the agent in charge of the New York office, assistant director in charge, was talking to the assistant director in charge of the Washington field office, and they were puzzled and wondering about this. They had been cut out of it, uh, but from what they heard, they wondered, they speculated that, the, quote unquote, they must have more because they clearly didn't think that this one conversation of Papadopoulos with somebody in London was enough to start this major intelligence investigation targeted at U.S. people, U.S. persons, namely the, the president's campaign. And they both said to each other, they must have more. Well, it turns out they didn't have more. Uh, but all of these people were in the dark. The thing was held by a very small group at the very top. And that's actually also the explanation I've been given by several people why there weren't whistleblowers. There weren't whistleblowers because other than the small group in the cabal, and, and you've heard all the names, McCabe, Comey, and Strzok. Other people didn't know about it, so they couldn't blow the whistle. They, they'd speculated, but they didn't really know about it. So what would you say to someone who goes, okay, yeah, maybe this was blown up a little bit, but listen, Trump obviously did some things wrong. It was worth looking into, or in general, Maybe the FBI should be monitoring the president to, to to make sure that he's not selling out the country. Well, the, the fact is, we always had 
very strict guidelines about starting an investigation that affected another branch of government, whether it's the judicial, the legislature, or somebody in the executive branch. Uh, I can personally remember being in meetings with Director Webster when Washington Field Office came in and had allegations, usually of a straight-up criminal nature, about a U.S. senator or a U.S. congressman. And he always asked, do you have more? You have to have more. There was a hesitation to start off investigating elected officials unless you had a real solid case. In this instance, they had nothing. What they opened and the, the electronic communications authored by Strzok opening the investigation simply cited the conversation of Papadopoulos in London. Well, that's gossip. And at the time of a presidential campaign, you could sit or stand at half a dozen bars or restaurants in Washington, D.C. and hear rumors like that. That's not enough to open an investigation of a U.S. person much less a person who's running for president of the United States. Okay, let's talk about the most recent kerfuffle with the FBI, of course, the raid at Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. What's your take on that? Well, I think what we'll probably find out when the affidavit is completely made public is that they did have enough probable cause to obtain a search warrant. Like so many other things involved in this, It probably was legal, but it's also an abuse uh, to to search, to do a conduct a raid on the residence of a former president is an abuse, especially when there were other means that could have been used and apparently were being used, negotiations and uh, civil summonses and others. So it'll probably turn out to be legal, but it was an abuse. And that's like so many things in this this whole sorted three or last three or four years. So many of the things were technically legal, but they were an abuse of authority. And I certainly think, and it's a bad look, and it was a bad look for the FBI to conduct a raid. And by the way, it was a raid. Some commentators have said that that shouldn't be called a raid. Well, that's what we always called them. And the segment <laughs> of instructions about it was called raids and arrests. I mean, that's a raid. You get a search warrant, it's a raid. Okay, so when would it be okay to raid a former president's house? Well, I don't know, and I don't have to know. I just know it's something that should be avoided. Uh, I mean, there are lesser ways. And that's with so many things. When there's a thing, and and this was very strict under, under Judge Webster. Again, I'll cite him. When you could do something in a less intrusive way, you were always to do it that way. And one of the most intrusive things of all is a FISA warrant. Uh, Now, FISA warrants initially were never intended to be used against U.S. persons. They were intended to be used against foreigners resident in this country. But in the case of the FISA warrants against Carter Page, there were a lot less intrusive ways of getting that information. Number one, you could have interviewed Carter Page. It turns out when he was interviewed in matters in the past, he cooperated. So that that was a clear abuse. Even if it turned out to be legally permissible, it was an abuse. Okay. Um, And by the way, you mentioned Comey and his book. Comey wrote a book and is profiting by it, and it sets forth a skewed version of history. Uh, 
McCabe has written a book and now Strzok has written a book the same way. None of them apologize for the damage they've done to the Bureau or to our country. And, and my book, The Fall of the FBI, one of the purposes of it is to be a countermeasure and a, a, a response to their terrible fiction. So how, if characters like Comey, McCabe, et cetera, are in the FBI, um, run the FBI, they, their intelligence, deceitful, deceptive, how does America trust the FBI again? There's got to be a lot of rebuilding done. The culture has to be reformed. It's a big job to reform. Two things have to be done internally with the FBI. The culture has to be reformed. And that's up to Ray or whoever takes his place as director to turn that around to and in changing culture. And there's been textbooks for business written about this, how you change culture. You have to do a lot of little things and big things. But the first thing you have to do is recognize the problem. And every time there's been a problem over the last three or four years, Ray has fallen back on saying, well, the bad apples are gone now. But we have to look at why why this came about with the bad apples. So that's the first thing. And the other thing with changing the FBI or getting the American people to trust, there's a role for Congress and the executive branch in this. There's specific reforms that can and should be made for one thing to the Pfizer Act. That's one really concrete thing. And other things, penalties should be put in for, as I said before, unmasking people, abusing 1001, uh, and then there's another abuse that's really done more by the CIA and was done in this, and John Brennan bragged about it, called incidental collection. The CIA is not supposed to collect information on Americans, uh, but if they're targeting a foreigner and an American's involved with that foreigner and they pick up information, if it's information of a national security or a criminal nature, they furnish it to the FBI. What Brennan indicated they've been doing is deliberate targeting. They will target a foreign person because that person, and this would happen with Carter Page and others, because that person's in touch with certain Americans because they want information on the Americans. So they were technically operating within the guidelines, but they were abusing that American's rights. And that's something that there should be penalties for as well. Okay. So what's the likelihood we get this headed in the right direction. Well, sadly, uh, I don't know. I wish I, I, I wish Ray and others would p- pick up the cudgel and get about reforming the FBI and getting its culture back to a swear to tell the truth law enforcement agency. But I don't know if they see it. I don't know if they'll do it. I fear perhaps maybe they'll never be the FBI that I once worked in and loved. Uh, There are one person, uh, former very high-ranking executive in the FBI, uh, had a meeting last fall, one-on-one meeting with Comey. And this individual told me that what he suggested they do is beyond Strzok and McCabe and, and those people, There were undoubtedly dozens of individuals and perhaps hundreds, uh, be they agents, uh, be they analysts, uh, be be they support staff 
in the FBI who saw some of this abuse taking place with the FISA warrant and other things. He said, ask those people without any penalties attaching, ask those people, did they ever feel uncomfortable by what they saw going on? And he said to Ray, and if they didn't feel uncomfortable, you really have a cultural problem. And my friend told me, Ray just looked at him and didn't respond. Hmm. Okay, as you mentioned, and we said in the introduction, the book is called The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. We will link to that, of course, in the show notes. Where else would you like us to send people to? Excuse me? Where else would you like to send people to? Social media, website? Um... Yeah, well, there there is a website for the book, Thomas J. Baker Book. Okay. And on Amazon, uh, there's an explanation of the book uh, and a very good explanation of, of the book and, and uh, what it's all about. And it can be ordered on Amazon, of course. Yeah. Okay. So we'll link to the book on Amazon. We'll link to the website as well. So if people can go check it out. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. That was some terrific questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you.